Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible professor and researcher, Aaron Ahuvia. Hello, Aaron, and welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. It's great to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about loving things. And for those that don't know, Aaron Ahuvia is a professor at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and the world's leading expert on the psychology of love when people love objects, activities, and all sorts of other things. He has found that by looking at love in these unusual contexts, you can get some interesting insights into the nature of love itself and better understand all forms of love, including the love of people. His popular book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are, has won the distinction of being an editor's choice and best nonfiction book on Amazon. How are you today, Aaron? I'm doing really well. So I'm so excited to have you on. We've had over a hundred podcast episodes all about love, but they've all been about interpersonal love. So I'm super excited to ask you all about what it means to love things. And I often think about a saying by the Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa that everyone loves something, even if it's just tortillas. I love that. (laughs) I love that. And I've heard you say that earlier. And I do talks about this pretty often. And I now have a slide in my talk quoting that, (laughs) uh, quoting quoting that saying because it's so beautiful for what I do. Yeah. And I, I love it too because it expresses how as human beings, we all have an innate capacity for love. We're wired for love. And even the most grumpy curmudgeon of individuals all love something. But I want to hear from you. Is our love for tortillas or sushi or Star Wars the same as our love that we have for other people? The same? Absolutely not. But there are some core elements. So if you think about it, the love you have for other people isn't one thing either. Romantic love is pretty different from the kind of love you feel in a, towards a family member other than a mate. And uh, that's a little different from what you feel towards a friend, which is also a kind of love. So even in interpersonal relationships, there are differences. You sort of have a certain core, and then it gets tweaked to be appropriate to the context. And that also happens when you love objects or activities. So I sometimes say that as human beings, we all need love and connection in our lives. And I'm curious if loving more things is also the key to happiness. When people say it's important to cultivate gratitude, should I cultivate a love of more things? Yeah, that can help. So long as you love the right things for the right reasons, it can absolutely help. It can also be a, a problem if you end up with the wrong things for you know the wrong reasons, mostly the wrong things. And one of the, the simple distinctions here, you mentioned gratitude, is loving the things that you have in your life is for the most part a really good thing everything can go wrong (laughs) so nothing's 100 percent great but you know that's for the most part a good thing whereas loving fantasy objects that you don't have or fantasy activities that you can't really participate in that's the opposite of gratitude What you're doing there is you're cultivating dissatisfaction with the things you have. What are some examples of that, loving things that we don't have? And what are some wrong things to love? (laughs) Right. A really simple example. Loving the car that you own is a pretty good thing. And it also reduces your costs uh, financially. Because people who love their cars take better care of their cars. They do better upkeep. The cars last longer. They are less inclined to buy a new car. So loving your car can be a really good thing. And you can encourage that by, say, naming your car. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit. (laughs) Whereas there are plenty of people who love cars they don't own. 
So maybe they've got a fantasy about getting rich someday and buying some extremely expensive car. Uh, having a little fantasy like that is not a problem. You know, having some fantasies, but if you dwell in those too much, if they become too much a part of your life, and it really becomes this, this craving for this thing you don't have, then that just becomes dissatisfaction and materialism in a way that's not very helpful to you. And I would say that you could draw a very direct parallel if you're in a romantic relationship, that if you love the person that you're in the relationship with, that's a really good thing. If you love somebody else that you're not in the relationship <laughs> with, that's a bad thing. And, you know, it's still love. People say love is a good thing. But actually, you know, if you're married and you're madly in love with someone other than your spouse, that's not such a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I'm really just hearing from you is that we should love what we have and lament less on what we don't have. Absolutely. That's that's part of it. So I think there was uh, there was another aspect to your question. If you repeat the question, I think there was another part that I wanted to get to. So you asked. Well, something I'm really curious about is I often wonder when somebody says, I love blank, like, I love this new TV show. Is it just sort of poor use of the word to mean like, I really like it? <laughs> or is there something that we can draw and learn from how we do say that we have an, a love and affection for material things in our life? It depends on the situation. So most of the time, if someone says, oh, I love this TV show, or I love your new haircut, or I love your new shoes, or whatever it might be, all that means is it's sort of a generic compliment. It doesn't even mean I like it a lot. It just means I think it's really, really good. Whatever it is, I love your haircut simply means by whatever standards I evaluate haircuts, your haircut does very well. It's, it's an excellent haircut. <laughs> it's not the same. However, some of the time when people say I love things, they really mean it. And so it's, it's not a rule that either that means nothing or not. I would also add that there's something to learn from even the situations where you say, oh, I love your haircut. And all you mean is nice haircut. There's something to learn from that. And that is when people use a word this way, it's a certain type of metaphor where you're using a part to represent the whole. So people will say, I'm going to New York City. And what they really mean is I'm going to Manhattan. And so they use the phrase New York City, the whole, to apply to just one part, Manhattan. In the same way, they say, I love your haircut. The whole of love involves a lot of things. But there's one part of it, which is this sort of high evaluation. Right, I think it's really excellent. And so we can learn that that's part of love. And we also see that the reason people say New York when they mean Manhattan is that Manhattan is a particularly important part of New York. They wouldn't say that for some part that wasn't terribly important. Right? And similarly, when people use the word this way, I love your car, just meaning it's a very good car, it teaches us that that evaluation is an important part of what, of what love is. And that is one of the interesting differences between interpersonal love and loving things. So they do these studies with fMRIs where they have people get into the brain scan and they scan their brain as they're experiencing love of their romantic partner, love of, say, their children, and love of a brand or a product or something like this. The part of the brain that is evaluating and judging how good something is, is much more active when you love a thing than it is when you love a person. It's not that we never evaluate how good a person is, especially if you're in a dating relationship, that first date has a lot of evaluation going on in it. But it's not as important a central part of the relationship as it is when you love a thing, that evaluation is more prominent there. Yeah, it's so interesting hearing from you because I almost think about how companies, brands, and products do almost co-opt our need and desire for love. Like you might see a billboard that has a picture of a phone and it says, your next true love or something like that. So it does almost seem sort of seem negative to like say, oh, this thing is going to fulfill you on a deep level, particularly if it's just a business who seeks to make money off of you. I agree. I think it can be used in, in bad ways in business. 
Uh, when businesses use love that way, we call it brand love. They want you to love whatever their <laughs> brand or, or product is. In general, I think that it's a good thing for businesses to focus on brand love, although it's not strategically wise for every business to do that. Uh, one of the things I do in, in consulting is I help businesses figure out whether brand love is really a good goal for them, because it is for some businesses, it's not for others. But one of the first things that a business needs to do if it really wants consumers to love its brand is it has to make sure its products are just great, they're really excellent. Because that's what we were talking about just a second ago, how that evaluation, it's not all of love. It's not the most interesting part of love. But for a product or a brand, it's the first part of love. And if if you have a product or brand that is sort of mediocre and you want people to love it, you know, you do not pass go. You do not collect $200 with that mediocre product. You first, as, as, as just to get into the game, you have to make sure that you've got something that's really good. So it's a way, you know, Getting companies to care about brand love is a way of motivating them to really produce excellent products. And it also motivates them to treat their customers well. Having said that, you are right that there is sometimes a suggestion that the things we love are going to fulfill us on the same deep level. And of course they don't. You're absolutely right that they don't for most, you know, they can't substitute for people. And one of the main interesting things from my research is that when people love things and have a sincere love for things, most of the time it's because that thing connects them to other people. When you look at the things that people actually love, they're so, so often things that, in the words of Russ Belk, another researcher who I, I like on these issues, he, he calls it person, thing, person. So it's like there's there's you, you're the person, then there's a thing, your cell phone, and then the other person are all the people that you text on your cell phone, right? So the, so the phone is an obvious thing that connects you. But a lot of times, let's just say you get a gift from a person. The gift connects you. It's not as like functional as a phone, but it connects you to the other person. There's you, and then the gift connects you to the person who gave you the gift. And when people love things over and over again, it turns out, when you talk to them, that there's some way in which this thing is connecting them to another person and helping their social relationships. I love that insight. And <laughs> I've been waiting to say that this whole time. So, but no, I, I really like this idea that when people love things, it's because it, it's a thing that connects them to other people. Like you might say, oh, I love coconut oil because I love using it on my partner. And <laughs> something like that. <laughs> that's that's really funny. That's really funny uh, that you would say that. I I don't know if you're going to want to. I don't, I probably shouldn't include this, but I will anyway. <laughs> and uh, it's just a funny story. When I was in uh, high school, to make a, a long story short, my parents were gone for a long weekend, and I had a girlfriend over, and we were giving massages involving oil, and the oil spilled on a wood floor. And I don't know if you've ever seen what happens when yeah, they'll stain it. It stains it. And so I was like, oh, no, what do I do? And then a friend said, well, well the thing you do is just to oil the whole floor because that will all look interesting <laughs> and they don't notice it. So, so I oiled the whole floor. My parents came home and they were like, WTF, what's up? Of course they noticed the whole floor was like this gleaming oil thing. They're like, they're like what happened? And I'm like, uh, well, I oiled part of the floor. And I guess I just felt the smartest thing to do was just to oil the rest of it. And that was, <laughs> that was my explanation. Yeah, that's a, I love that story. We might have to take it out. I'm not sure if it relates, but it's a very interesting <laughs> story. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about your, your escapades as a younger kid. But what I, I would love to get back to, because you mentioned scanning people's brains when they talk about loving, loving things because I'm very curious about how we can make our love of things better and what kind of affects our love of things. I'm much more familiar with intimate relationships and we have things like attachment theory and understandings of how our early childhood relationships affect our adult romantic relationships. But I'm also just thinking about something like depression where you stop loving things, you stop even liking things and everything is painted gray and kind of what, again, kind of happening in the brain that might change how I might 
love something and even just relate to the world around me. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not an expert specifically in depression. So I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant because I'm afraid I'm going to stick my, my foot in it on, on depression. But I, I do think there is a kind of an energy that people feel in the sense, you know, not, not in sort of the woo-woo energetics way, but just in the sense of being depressed, you're low energy. And, you know, when you're, when you're happy, you're, you're high energy or higher energy. And that energy can have a really nice cycle with things that you love, objects and also a lot of activities that they, they do, they are energizing. And I would say that if you're depressed, you know, it's, a, it's certainly a safe try if there are activities that you love to, to get off your butt and go and do them as a way of hopefully, you know, it, it might not, I'm not saying this is going to cure your depression, but it certainly isn't going to hurt. And the, when people are depressed, they don't want to do anything, as you were saying, right? You know, the, the inclination when you're depressed is just to sit there. So if there's something that it's a hobby that you really love doing, maybe that's something that'll be a little bit easier to motivate and get up and do because you'll have these, these positive memories. And I know that just getting active is one of the things that can help people with depression. Well, I'm curious if you found a difference or have looked in, into it uh, or into the type of people that say person A loves a lot of things. Oh, that movie was great. And uh, let's go to the sushi restaurant. It's my favorite place. Versus the difference between somebody's brain or disposition or even background who almost sees the world through a more critical and evaluative lens. Yeah. I, I will tell you, this is gets a little personal. No, there's another story time with Aaron. <laughs> another story time with Aaron. I'm someone who loves a lot of things. I tend to have a very optimistic, positive disposition. My wife is, let's just say, more evaluative and critical on certain things. And she'll tease me sometimes because I'll say like, I, so I love music is one of the things. And I'll say, like, oh, I love this musician. They're here. She is one of my very favorite musicians. And she always says, well, they can't all be your favorite musicians. <laughs> you have like, if, you have like, if you have like 300 favorite musicians and anyone who, who has 300 favorite musicians doesn't know what the word favorite means, which I, I think is kind of funny and is a, is a legitimate perspective on this. But that does get actually to somewhat uh, around attachment theory that people who are anxiously or avoidantly attached. And I'm going to assume for a moment that the listeners to this show probably know what that means. Is that a, a safe bet or should I give a quick? Well, if you don't know what attachment theory is, I encourage you to go into the episodes and check out the <laughs> many episodes that we've had on attachment theory. Very good. So I'll just, I'll just say super quickly, like if you as a small child had problems, your, your parents had problems connecting with you, you can end up either anxiously attached, which means you're sort of chronically worried that other people don't find you desirable, or avoidantly attached, which means that you're chronically worried that other people are going to do you wrong in one way or another. And those people with those dispositions have a harder time in their relationships with objects too. And a lot of that does come from the fact that, as I was saying before, and as we sort of talked about, but I think it's worth really getting into a little bit more, so much of our love for objects is really derived from our love for, for other people. I even think about this with the metaphor of the light of the moon and the light of the sun. So the light of the moon is beautiful and on a full moon, it can be you know somewhat bright, but it's always really the reflected light of the sun. And it's true for a lot of the things we love that our love for them is like the light of the moon. It's really reflected love from our relationships that we have with other people. You know, you, you love that photograph of a person, but it's because it represents the person. <laughs> it's not just the photograph. <laughs> yeah, the photograph I love this photo of my mom. It's not just a good photo. It's the sentimental value of it. The sentimental value, that person thing, person connection, that it's like the photo, there's you, the photo, and then your mom, it connects you through to, to your mom. So that's really powerful. Some of the earliest research on this was done by sociologist named Rochberg Halton and his thesis advisor, who some listeners may have heard of, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who is very famous for his work later on flow and happiness, and whose name shows up a lot in these things. And they went 
to a lot of people and just ask them, you know, in their home, are there objects that are, quote, special to you? Do you have like special possessions? And this is the same as, uh, as things people love. And then they looked at the people's relationships with those objects and with other people. And they went in expecting to find that people who had a lot of special relationships or close or intimate relationships with objects would have fewer relationships with people because the, the relationships with objects would be comp compensating for the lack of interpersonal relationships. Or maybe in a worse, even worse case, the objects would be interfering. They'd be putting their time and energy into these objects when they ought to be doing that with people. And so the objects would be hurting their relationships. But what they actually found out was that there was a pretty good positive correlation that the people who had the best relationships with objects also had the best relationships with people. And their explanation for this, which I have always found very compelling, is that there's some people who are just good at forming relationships. That would be the securely attached people. They're just good at forming and maintaining relationships and they form and maintain relationships with people. And they do that with objects as well. Whereas people who have a hard time with relationships with people often also have a hard time in their relationships with objects. That's what I was wondering, if there is a correlation between love of things and perhaps happiness or perhaps mental health, because even secure attachment is strongly correlated with relationship satisfaction, life satisfaction, even success in one's career. Yeah, I haven't. There's, there's so many different aspects to love of things, because, again, it sort of depends on what is this thing you love? The person who loves the photograph of themselves with their family that's just a very different kind of love than the person who, you know, loves some, you know, item that they can't afford and sit around fantasizing about. Those are, those are different situations. And you can often see in the things people love what their values, the person's values, what they really value, and also what they think that they need. So people who are very dissatisfied with their current state of affairs tend to love things they don't have, right? And tend to really want things that they don't have. And that correlates with unhappiness. That's a kind of a materialism and materialism, we know it correlates with unhappiness most of the time. But people who are sort of happy with their life can take a lot of pleasure out of, out of objects as well. And that can correlate with happiness. Well, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about another finding from Buddhist psychology, because there is the intuitive sense that if I am loving things in my life, I must have a pretty good and happy life. But uh, finding from Buddhist psychology, one that is even in line with, say, just physics, that everything moves and nothing is permanent, the Buddha might say that our attachment to material things is actually what causes us suffering. So you said earlier about loving our car, and that ends up meaning we take very good care of our car. But then we go to the parking lot and the car is scratched and we get so mad and so angry or even sad. that like, oh, my, my precious, beautiful car now has a scratch on it. And then every time we go to the car and we see the scratch, then we get like angry or sad. So what, is, what does that mean when material things might not last or change or we might lose them and then we experience the same grief that we would if we were to lose a relationship. It is true. So I've talked to, I have a friend, colleague, and co-author who is Mathieu Ricard. Oh, yeah. You know, familiar with him. Mm -hmm. Great. So Mathieu Ricard, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, started life. He's French. He got a PhD. He was a scientist went to India, got very interested in Buddhism, became a Tibetan Buddhist monk, and made that his full-time life from then on. And he's very involved in a lot of the research on Buddhism and meditation, and particularly the research on meditation. He also acts as the spokesperson for the Dalai Lama on meditation issues frequently. So I say that only to say that he is a great authority on these things. And I've asked him about this attachment issue, not as much as I would like, uh, but I have uh, maybe a story also and a, uh, some, some words from him. So the problem that you mention with the car is a real problem. It is also the same problem you have with people. You, if you love somebody and they die, you're going to be very, very sad. 
it's not a good reason for not loving people. You know, loving people is a really good thing in your life. And the fear that something somehow might go wrong is not a really good reason for not enjoying that richness in your life. But what you want to cultivate through Buddhism, or at least through meditation, as I understand it from Matthew, are a couple different things. First, he explained to me succinctly, nothing is a problem unless it's a problem, which means that if you love an activity and you just get a lot of richness and joy out of doing that thing. So I love mountain biking. If I got injured and was unable to go mountain biking, I would be sad about that. But it's not a good enough reason not to really enjoy mountain biking because it really is a, a worthwhile activity. And you're just, you're never going to enjoy anything if you take that kind of attitude because there's always, as you say, this risk of losing it. But you, what you hope to get out of meditation is enough insight into yourself that you can separate out attachments to activities that really serve you, that keep you healthy and give you joy and help you connect with people and are sort of really serving you in that way from attachments to activities that are not serving you, but you may also, you know, you, you may also engage in them. So to try and do some discernment around that is one of the things. The other thing is to have the ability to minimize the pain of those losses when they do occur. So ideally, you would enjoy the positive thing. You'd enjoy loving your car while you had it. But then when it got the scratch, you would be able not to dwell on that and not have that diminish your relationship and not to have that be a big problem for you in your life. So I will give you a Matthew Ricard story. So I was with a group of us and we had worked together for a long time. We were pretty good friends. And one of the people whose name I won't mention now, <laughs> lest someone, you know, it was, it was funny at the time, had this idea, well, Matthew always talks about non-attachment, but he has this watch that I can tell he really <laughs> cares about because it was given to him. I don't remember whether it was given to him by the Dalai Lama or it was given to him by somebody else who was a teacher of his in the Buddhist tradition. It was, but it was an important gift that he'd received from someone through his Buddhist work. And he really cares about that. Let's see what would happen if he lost that watch. So uh, this, this person went and uh, while he was, Matthew was swimming or something, took the watch temporarily to see what whether he would be upset by this. And to his credit, nothing happened. Okay. Nothing happened there. And uh, then when he, the watch was returned to him, he said, oh, yes, I'm so glad to have this returned because this was an important gift that I'd received. And, you know, I would have been sad if it had been missing, if it had really been gone and, you know, it is it is something that does me it's meaningful to me. But he was able to handle the loss without it, you know, ruining his didn't even ruin his day. It didn't seem to ruin his five minutes. So I think that's that's maybe the model of non-attachment. Your little monk monk prank. Put him to the test. Let's see how <laughs> non-attached he really is. <laughs> in ret in retrospect, watch. it sounds kind of horribly cruel. And maybe it was a little cruel. But at the time, we were, you know, we were spending a lot of time together on a, on a retreat. And it was kind of funny. Yeah. No, I love it. I love what you're saying. That was a key piece I was even hearing from you earlier on the importance of discernment. You mentioned that loving things is good, but we want to make sure we love the right things for the right reasons. And loving our activities are good as long as they're life-serving, joy-serving activities. And if there's activities that are creating sadness, grief, pain, suffering, those are things we can think about letting go of. Absolutely. I would also say with regard to this issue of non-attachment and, and objects, that there are two good ways of relating to objects and one bad way. And I'll run through all three very briefly. So one good way is the sort of traditional non-attachment, and that is you just don't care about them very much. And if that's you, I think that's totally fine. I wouldn't change that. So if you know money just doesn't matter to you that much, that's healthy. If you are content to live simply 
and you don't think about objects and what you'd like to own that you don't own a lot because you just don't think about objects very much. You don't think about possessions. It's not a big part of your life. Your mind is on other things. That's great. And I encourage you to focus on perhaps activities that you love doing and how you can spend more time in those activities and relationships with other people that are important and how you can make those relationships stronger and really put your energy there. And that's wonderful. So that's good. The bad approach is, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, this constant craving that what I have isn't good. I need more. If I only have a little more here or a little bit there, if I only owned this or owned that, if I was only able to go to this resort or that nightclub or whatever it is that you've got in your head, that that's going to really you know, help me. And that's where, that's where my happiness is going to lie. That whole approach does not work very well. There's a lot of research on materialism. People who have that approach have a very interesting relationship, by the way, to things that they love because they don't, as I said earlier, they don't really love the things they own. They tend to be horribly disappointed in the things that they own. And they enjoy possessions the most before they buy them, which may seem bizarre, but what they're actually enjoying is the daydream of how wonderful it will be when they have this thing. So they get pleasure out of that anticipatory daydream about it. But then as soon as they buy the thing, it never really does what they hope it will do. And so they'd stop getting pleasure from it once they own it. And then they need a new daydream about a new thing. And that keeps them in debt and keeps them buying and buying. So that's like the approach you want to avoid. The third approach And I'll use someone, let's say, who's very into clothing as an example here. A lot of times people who are into clothing, what they really want are the social relationships that clothing helps them have. So maybe you go shopping with friends and the clothing is just something that you talk about with your friends when you're shopping. And it's really the interaction with your friends that you're craving. Or maybe it's the clothing because you talk about it with friends in other situations, or you think it's gonna get you social acceptance. You think that someone's gonna like you better or accept you more, or maybe it's prestige. You think that you're gonna be seen as more powerful and ambitious and successful if you have expensive clothing, right? All these other kinds of things. What I would recommend is trying to find friends who are gonna support you in a more creative relationship to clothing. So the secret here would not be like one option is to say, okay, don't get attached. uh, And that means just stop caring about clothing. But if you like clothing, you don't want to stop caring about clothing. You like clothing. So maybe the secret for that person is to care about clothing more. Like what would happen if you cared about clothing so much that you wanted to design and make your own clothing? It would take you a year to learn to design clothing, then get the fabric and cut it and learn to sew is a whole project. It's quite uh, it's quite a skill. And I, there are groups in every town where people get together and they work on knitting or other kinds of sewing projects together. So make a social relationships around a, an engaged, creative connection to the thing that you love. And I think you'll find that your love for it can really deepen and you also save yourself a lot of money because you, instead of shopping constantly, you're involved in this deeper, more creative, uh, more connected way. So to summarize, we have two good ways and one bad way. The, the two good ways was traditional non-attachment and then making a social relationship around the loving things. And the bad way was the, con- the constant craving. The bad way is the constant craving. The, the first good way is the non-attachment. You just, I don't care about this kind of approach. The other way is an active engagement with the thing, but one that tries to serve your needs as a human being. And those are going to be needs for relationships with other people so that you really are using it in an effective social way to have relationships with people. And, and then people do this all the time. People who love playing board games and use the board games as a way to connect with other people, right? So, you know, find a way to do that, but also something that feeds your creativity, because that's another thing that we really need as human beings. And a lot of times people with a hobby like shopping, it is a creative hobby. People who aren't interested in shopping don't appreciate this But like clothes shopping is a very creative activity in that you're always thinking about creating a sort of an ensemble of items and how they might work together. But what I'm suggesting is 
that's also very expensive. So maybe focusing your creativity in a way like learning to make the clothing yourself that is going to really help you grow and become more skilled. And it doesn't mean losing that connection to the, the fashion that you are interested in, but it becomes a more creative, generative connection to that. So listening to you, I'm very curious if you have any insight around things that we start out, start out loving, but then end up hating most often due to like an overexposure. So maybe we love a song the first time we hear it, but then we hear it so often we end up hating it. When you talk about even like mountain biking or other things, I'm reminded of hobbies that we really enjoy on the side. And we think, oh, I love this so much. I am going to earn a living off of it. I'm going to spend 40 hours a week doing this. And then you end up kind of hating it because it turns into a job and you don't have the joy of doing it that you once did. So... Curious, like, why that happens, how it happens, and how you might make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, so there's a couple different things there. So one worth noting is that there is a very dependable general pattern that has to do with why we enjoy certain kinds of things. This would apply to a lot of stuff. It applies to songs that you hear, books, television shows, movies, foods that you eat, all sorts of things like this. And the general pattern is it's really visible with songs. I use that as an example a lot. So the first time you hear a song, occasionally you'll love it the first time you hear it. Uh, Pop music is really made so that people will love songs the first time they hear them because that's how long you've got (laughs) to, to, to get the listener's attention. But a lot of times with songs, they grow on you. So you first time you hear it, you like it a little bit. And then as you hear it more, you come to like it more and more. And then at a certain point, you really love it. But then it starts to go the other way. And as you hear it more, you dislike it until eventually you're sick of it. And then it becomes like painful. Like I never want to hear that song again. That pattern, I talk about this in the book in more detail. So if If you're interested in a little more detailed explanation of why that happens, I've got a whole chapter on it. I'll try to give you the very quick version. Basically, your brain wants to learn from whatever that stimulus is. And the first time you hear it or hear a new song, your brain hasn't made enough sense out of it yet to really enjoy it. So as you listen to it more, Your brain gets more familiar with it. It can hear it in more detail. It notices more things. And it's really learning a lot. And the pleasure you get from listening to that song is the reward your brain is giving you for its experience of learning something. But as you listen to it again and again, the brain's already learned all it's going to learn. It's not getting new information or new knowledge or growth. You're not growing as a person that way by listening to it. And so your brain starts punishing you and say, no, give me something else. You know, I've already, it's like a sponge. I've squeezed it dry. I'm not getting any more out of it. I'm just squeezing and squeezing. There's nothing else to get. And so you, you get this pain of being sick of something. There's a couple lessons there. One lesson that I think is very important is that you learn to like things. And a lot of the things that give you the most pleasure in the long run are things that you have to try several times before you come to like them. So it used to be that people listen to entire CDs. Now, often we're streaming and we use playlists. But back in the day, if you like put on a CD into a CD player, what you might have noticed is you bought the CD for one or two songs that were the hits that you thought you really liked. And then you listened to the whole CD a lot of times because you wanted to hear the hits. And then you notice that your favorite songs were never the hits. The songs (laughs) that you really enjoyed the most were other songs on the CD that you came to like more slowly. And what got you to listen to them enough was that they were on the same CD as the hits. So that's a fundamental truth there. And so if you love music the way I do, and you, I used to listen to a lot of playlists, but I realized I was only listening to the songs that I liked instantly. I wasn't having that experience. So now I go and sort of force myself, even though I'm streaming music, I'll put on a CD instead of a playlist because I want to have the experience of hearing the other songs over and over again and really growing to understand them and really like them. 
So one of the lessons there is give things more of a chance than you think you need to. You let yourself hear something again and again. Let yourself read something a couple times over. Let things sink in as part of discovering whether you uh, like them or not. It's interesting using the metaphor of music as a way to describe how things do grow in us. And it's almost not even the external object itself that is providing us with the pleasure, but it's how our brain is learning from it and growing from it. And we stop enjoying it when our brain's like, all right, I've learned everything that I need to learn from this thing. And I'm almost kind of curious because I do think of pop music, which almost seems specifically designed for you to love it immediately and then forget about it soon so that you can then become another consumer for the next popular music that uh, is going to come after that, like Cotton Candy or something. And it almost reminds me of, I do feel like in today's society, we do live in almost a throwaway culture where we just consume and consume products and we almost savor less and appreciate less and are always moving on to the next thing. Just curious if you have any insight on that. I do, and I want to uh, make two points. So first, I don't believe that planned obsolescence, what you're talking about with the song, is part of a general thing called planned obsolescence, where you design something knowing ahead of time you're making it not last as long as it could. In general, I think that while companies do that on occasion, it has happened, they don't do it all that much because there's so much competition that if they can make you help you love something longer and have it last longer, they usually feel like, well, you'll, you're more likely to purchase it instead of the competition. And so they're, they're willing to do that. And I think the song is a good example where you're totally right about it being engineered, like the pop music is engineered to have you like it the very first time because in our culture, especially with streaming music now, if if you don't he- like a song in the first 15 seconds, you know, you may never listen to that thing again. <laughs> uh, so there's, and, and it used to be on the radio. I mean, this is in general, I like streaming much more than this. I'm not, this is not always a good thing. But, you know, when we were stuck having to listen to the radio, you would be forced to listen to the same song a number of times. And then it could kind of grow on you. Um, and you're not forced to do that now. So what makes a song likable in the first moments is a kind of familiarity and simplicity. And that, because you're designing it to be liked immediately, unfortunately, the same traits that make you like it immediately, that it's really easy for your brain to digest it, is sort of soft and mushy for your brain and just ready to go. Those exact same features mean that you get sick of it really quickly. And there's sort of, it's, there's no way around that. It's, it's the same, two sides of the same coin, which is why if you choose music or books or whatever, that you need to learn to like a little bit, they can in the long run give you very deep pleasure and they can stay with you longer because there's more complexity there, more nuance, more subtlety, more things to really come to love and enjoy. So that's about the music, but the, the, the wider question that you asked, but about our throwaway culture, that is a real problem, especially environmentally. And as I mentioned a little bit before, there's a couple of ways of dealing with that. One way is just to not buy stuff to begin with. The other way is also to keep the stuff you have longer and to keep it longer to actually appreciate it more. So there are a lot of things you can do to build a better relationship with the things that you have in your life. And one thing that makes a huge difference in how long you want to keep something is whether your brain thinks of it as a little bit human or not. So when you look at hoarders, the problem that hoarders have is that their brain, everyone's brain has a mechanism or several mechanisms that sort out people from objects. And the reason your brain have these mechanisms is because your brain thinks about people in social ways and using one sort of set of thought processes, and it thinks about objects in different ways. Sometimes, I don't want to give you the impression that your brain is divided into two physical parts, the the person part and the object part, but there are some specific situations where the brain does think about objects and people in different parts, different physical parts of the brain. And I mentioned that just to show how 
hardwired in this distinction between people and objects is for the brain. And so these sorting mechanisms need to put everything in the right place. With hoarders, the sorting mechanism malfunctions all the time. And so it's putting all sorts of things into the people thought processes that are really just objects. And once something gets into the people thought processes, it gets very hard to detach from it and to get rid of it. And so if you're a hoarder and you know every newspaper that comes through the door gets your brain malfunctions and has you think of it like it's a person, then you end up saving all of these newspapers and you can't get rid of them because you think they would be harming the newspapers and you have a kind of attachment to them. So what you want to do, you don't want to become a hoarder. You don't want to do that for everything. <laughs> but you want to use that to very selectively find things that you want to become attached to because they're good things, they serve their function, and they're a part of your life and you're happy to have them around. You don't really need to get rid of them. For not a, It's not a newspaper that you want to get rid of every time you're done reading it. So for those things, maybe your washer dryer, your, you know, your stove, whatever it might be, get your brain to think of it as if it was human. And the way you do that is you can name it and you can talk to it. So if you name your stove or name your refrigerator, that you'll 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 want to keep it longer. And if you talk <laughs> to it, like every time, every time you get something out of your refrigerator, if you say, I don't know why I want to call my Fred my fridge Fred, I guess because they both begin with F, right? Mm -hmm. But That's if you say right, to yourself, Fred the fridge, thank you for keeping this milk cold for me. It sounds insane, but it you will come to enjoy your refrigerator more and you'll keep it a lot longer and you won't be plagued by these ideas that, oh, I really need a new refrigerator. So there's almost like a healthy anthropomorphization that happens when we attribute those qualities to things in our life. Yeah. And you, you should use it selectively and strategically. Right? You don't want to anthropomorphize everything um, because it does make it very difficult uh, <laughs> to, to part with things once you've done that. But it's, it's a nice way of reducing the throwawayness. And I, I think another aspect to that is when you do need to buy something, buy something that's good enough that you're going to want to keep it. So I'll give you an example from a conversation I had with my wife. So she was like showing me new shoes she had bought in a very classic married family conversation. I was saying to her, you seem to have a lot of shoes do you, you know, why are we buying, why are you buying more shoes? And she says, well, those shoes hurt and they don't really fit my feet quite right. And I don't like walking in them because they're uncomfortable. And I said, well, if they were uncomfortable, why did you buy them? She said, well, they were on sale. It was such a good bargain that these things were on sale. And I said, well, what about the shoes that you just brought home? And she said, well, these are also on sale. That's why I bought them. And so we talked about it and we decided that what she should do is, Instead of buying shoes that are on sale, go ahead and spend full price to get the right shoes. Shop for them, figure out what you need, find them, buy the right shoes at full price, and then be happy with them and not feel the need to constantly be buying more shoes. So you're investing more money up front, but you're saving a lot of money in the long run because you're, not, you're getting the right thing and you're not needing to replace it constantly. Yeah, I feel like the alternate title for your book is like Aaron Ahubia's Consumer Tips <laughs> for buying the things that will bring you joy and not buying the things that won't. So I very much appreciate all the psychology you're bringing into this super interesting conversation. I wish I could ask you all the questions about all the things that people love, but people can definitely look into your book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And I do have to finish with the question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? This is going to open up a whole can of worms, but I do think it's important. When you love a person or an object, the core mechanism that is true for all the different kinds of love is that you are extending your own sense of identity, your own sense of self to include that other person or that object within your larger sense of who you are and your larger sense of identity. And most of the time this goes well. Sometimes it can backfire, it cannot go so well, but it is part of the core process. And so 
I hope people understand that about love and recognize that we're not so separate from other people, that our own sense of who we are is very connected to people. There was a study done a number of years ago where they asked people to bring in photographs that explained who they are. They could be photographs of anything. More people brought in photographs of other people than brought in photographs of themselves, which I think was quite interesting. So it really comes down to understanding how interconnected we are with the other people in our lives and also the things and the world around us and perhaps seeing ourselves as not so separate. Beautiful. I was thinking about that because people sometimes say, I'm a cat person, I'm a dog person, I'm a Apple, I'm an Android person. And that's absolutely true. It becomes part of our identity. So thank you so much, Aaron Ahuvier, for coming on to the show. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? My website, thethingswelove.com. I've got a blog at Psychology Today. You can sign up for the blog at the website. So come on to the website and uh, also the book. And if you happen to, I do a lot of speaking. Uh, I love to talk about this stuff, both to business, but also to just general purpose audiences, just citizens who are interested in these topics. So that might be another way to connect. Amazing. And I'll have to get all the citations from you for this podcast. Also, I'll put them in the show notes. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember all the valuable tips that Aaron gave for us, including loving what you have, lamenting less on what you don't have. And a lot of the times when we love things, it's because that thing connects us to other people. There are good ways to love things like traditional non-attachment, but also looking at the things that serve your needs as a human being, like creativity and social connection. And the things that give us the most pleasure tend to be those that take time to grow in us. And it's important to buy something that's good enough. You want to keep it for the long run. And the things that we buy and the people that we love become part of ourselves, part of who we are. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to sackbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Aaron. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 